Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the People Who Surf podcast. I am Chris Morrow, your host. My guest today is Troy Eckert, a multi-talented surfer, skater, snowboarder, artist, business leader, yogi, and transformative life coach. I've watched Troy grow up over the last 30 years, and I'm thrilled to have him as my guest because I believe his impact on surfing, let alone board riding culture, has been huge, yet it's largely unheralded. Now, Troy doesn't seem to care about that, but make no mistake, as employee number one at Volcom, where he served as the head of their marketing department for more than two decades, he's made an indelible mark on our scene. His fingerprints are everywhere, and he was instrumental and taking Volcom to the stratosphere during their heyday of the 90s and 2000s. The magic they bottled and the impact they made is the kind of stuff that marketing professors teach today. And while you'll hear a lot about the Volcom story, this episode is even more about the lessons he's learned since. When Troy left in 2011, he seemed set for life, but life has a way of messing up plans. After moving to Kauai, his marriage fell apart. He lost a good chunk of his fortune on what he calls bad egocentric bets. And then came a mysterious health problem. Within a few short years, the dream he'd built had come crashing down around him. But Troy's nothing if not resilient. After some serious soul searching and self-care, he has re-emerged back in Southern California happier, healthier, and more grateful than ever. He spent five months living in a motorhome by Trestles, stripping his life down to the basics. It's a vital part of what he calls his radical voyage, which is the inspiration behind his newest venture of helping others with an immersive, holistic approach to life coaching. Now, Troy's three daughters tired eventually of the motorhome. They wanted a little more space. So this fall, he finally moved in to a new place in Dana Point. And that's where I caught up with him. So Troy Eckert, welcome, buddy. What's up, man? So we're out here on your new patio. It's a gorgeous day, and I notice you've got a very clean space here surrounded by what looks like the bare essentials. So I imagine just stripping things down to that level must have involved a pretty big cleansing of sorts. Yeah, major cleansing, because most of the time we're accumulating so much shit over the years. It just gets stored in the garage, it's in a cupboard, it's under the bed, it's like in a closet, and just, you don't even use 90% of your stuff mm -hmm. when it comes down to it. So I'm super excited to get into a new space because I have a whole new outlook on my life, and therefore the space is that much more important to me. So everything that's going in that house is going to have a meaning, it's going to have intention and a purpose. And purpose seems to be another big pillar behind everything you're doing right now. I mean, you've reached some crazy highs in your life and career, but you've also been through some very tough lows, which I'm guessing they both serve you very well, given the lessons each of those experiences offer. A hundred percent. Through my experience in the corporate world, riding that thing from being 18 till I was 38. And I mean, the lessons learned there was enough. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you sprinkle in all the other like real life stuff that happened after. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's where it got real for me. Honestly, like during Volcom, it was kind of like, I mean, we worked our asses off. We played hard too, mm -hmm. but it was kind of like La La Land. Yeah. We were always getting raises. It was a crazy Cinderella story in a sense. So then when I left, it was like, holy shit, this is actually like life now. And then obviously I had a succession of things that occurred in my life that were pretty that I, the stuff I'd never dealt with before. So learning how to 
kind of use those experiences as fuel for the future mm -hmm. and not be a victim. And I have so much gratitude for all of it, all the shit, mainly the shit, actually. Yeah. Like, I have tons of gratitude for the good stuff, too. Right. But it's the shit that really creates character. Yeah. And how you bounce back from the shit. Right. And so, to me, that's the work. That's been my work. Sort of coming to Jesus around all that stuff. Where was rock bottom for you? Where were you? Were you on Kauai? No, I know you, no, it, no. I was here. Like, here. this is like, this is just like not even two years ago. Mm. It's funny because the divorce thing, I thought that was my like dark night. Yeah. <laughs> I was just getting warmed up at that point. <laughs> <laughs> that was not my dark night, you know, and I and I think that a lot of people, even when they think of that sort of the whatever, quote unquote, dark night of the soul, they think, oh, a, a divorce or something like that. <laughs> Just wait. Yeah. I mean, this is literally, like I said, thinking you will not survive, thinking you're going to die, basically. It was gnarly. So I was stressed. I was in some hyper stress. There was some depression going on for sure. Midlife. It was kind of like the weight of the world felt like it was on me at that moment. And I started to get these crazy symptoms like legs tingling and brain fog and just these crazy symptoms that were just unexplainable. And I've been very, very healthy my entire life. So it just all decided to kind of come out and it really manifested when I was at the grocery store with my, my middle daughter. And all of a sudden I like basically almost pass out. I just go super lightheaded. What happened was I was going into a full panic attack and I didn't even know it. And that's what happens. Like those things will creep up on you and just blindside you. Wow. It was gnarly. I, I called I called Dunin actually, like right as it was happening. <laughs> Dr. Dunin. I'm like, dude, I think I'm having a stroke. I think I'm going to die. He's all, bro, take a couple of deep breaths. You're having anxiety. You're having like a, an, a panic attack. Wow. And I'm like, really? Like <laughs> in the car, in the parking lot at Albertsons in San Clemente. I'm like, this is happening right now. And so I did. I took a few deep breaths and I kind of calmed down and, and, gone on my way but that was the first moment that was just like holy shit this is real mm. and so come to find out i so i end up going to a neurologist I, a cardiologist i do you know blood work i do all this stuff try to figure out what the hell was was going on and um i found a leak in my house and it ended up there there was mold so i had mold poisoning but my immune system was so depleted mm. from the stress the depression, all the things that it was a perfect environment for me to get nailed. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. And just years of abuse on my body and, you know, whether it be surfing or partying or whatever over the years, Volcom years, mm -hmm. like catching up to me. Right. And just all that stuff being stored in my body had nowhere to go, but just to like explode in me. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was insane. And from that point on was really like, I need to do some deep work to find out what the hell is going on. Number one, physically, and but um, but then on the mental side too. And beginning the journey from scratch, just yeah. you know, just like your whole identity ripped away from you. Yeah, in a sense, you know. Yeah, a hundred percent. But not in a victim way. In in a just that's what happened. You right. Know? Now, that's what it felt like at the time, anyways. And it was in that process where I found all my growth and found out who the hell I am and what it is I truly want. And there was 
so much soul searching in those moments. And I mean, even now I'm still healing from all of it. I'm doing all these things. I'm pushing through it, knowing that this is part of my process. This is part of my path, you know? So. The healing always enters through yeah. the wound, right? Totally. And it's funny. I was reading something, a blog post or something the other day. They're talking about how the athlete is always going to have pain, but they're always going to push through the pain, right? They're always healing. So that goes for all other types of healing too, right? Like emotional, spiritual, all that sort of thing. You're probably never going to be fully healed, mm. <laughs> but you can take the steps to better yourself and push through it. And in that process, you heal more. It was a little bit of a journey for you to get from your Volcom days mm. to this person you are now. Yeah. Which is a new person. Well, 100% new person. I'm a different person. 2.0. Or 4.0, whatever you, whatever point oh you want to put on it. How yeah. so? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 dude, I hit rock bottom, like straight up. Your mortality, all of that stuff just comes screaming at you. It's like a locomotive just hitting you in the face, basically. So what have you learned from the time you left Volcom to today? There's so many lessons. I mean, the biggest thing for me was I was a shitty communicator. I'm speaking specifically with the, with the divorce and whatnot. I just wasn't a very good communicator at all. I'm at a place now where I'm able to own my shit with it. That has been the biggest takeaway. I forgave myself. That's the toughest part. Yeah, and like it, take, it takes a lot of inner work to be able to get to that place. And I look at our relationship now as exes mm -hmm. as being awesome. We co-parent super well, and it's actually a better situation and scenario. So I have so much gratitude for that experience. Mm -hmm. And I know that it was meant to just play out how it did. So... I think in retrospect, if things like this happen to people, it's just, what's the good? <laughs> yeah. There's always good in it, you know, no matter what. And just to carry that crap along with you is poison. Yeah. That's been a big process of me getting underneath that. Right. To like own my faults, my issues, my insecurities, my fears, whatever it is. And you don't realize that shit when you're in it a lot of the time, you know? So as you go through this sort of spiritual opening, it only gets deeper. You're opening Pandora's box. It's like the more I know, the less I know now. The toughest stuff was just being anxious around not really knowing what, the uncertainty. If, I, if I was going to be okay. Yeah. That, that was the toughest thing. Yeah. And I mean, I remember I didn't surf for like three or four months and then I went surfing at like churches or, or uh, Santa one day and, and I was like, okay. I got this. I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And then surfing was the thing actually that really, again, brought me back to homeostasis, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> that yoga, meditation, breath work, I mean, all those things. But it means so much more to me now. It's so different now. And I'm starting to finally get out of that FOMO mode. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? Or like when dudes tell you like, oh, dude, I got so barreled in noobs. Before I'd be like, dude, what the fuck? Like, fuck, dude, I missed it. What the fuck? <laughs> you know, but now I'm just like, hell yeah, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Stoked like, for you. Stoked for you. I truly feel that. Not this passive aggressive thing, you know, yeah. like surfers do. <laughs> totally. No, it's, you, you feel gratitude. It's like, yeah. you've gotten plenty of good ways in your life. I know. You'll get more. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So it's just, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk about now, in this place where you are now, you've obviously been to the top of your game because, look, the Volcom story is written. You guys smashed it, killed it, 
went public, you know, the vast majority of you guys did pretty well. And granted, it's been through a few iterations since you left. You left how long ago? 2011, officially, yeah. Okay, so it's almost like, gosh, eight years? Yeah. Um, it's changed, safe to say, but from 91 to 2011? Yeah, 20 years. That ride you went on, what a ride. Yeah, what a blur. Yeah. <laughs> Troy got into surfing at the age of 10, after his parents divorced. His dad moved to Huntington Beach, which is where Troy honed his skills next to older guys like Scott Farnsworth and Gary Clisby, who were members of that era's renowned NSSA national team, coached by Ian Cairns and Peter Townend. In 1984, Farnsworth won the hotly contested ISA World Contest right there on his home turf. And with Tom Curran simultaneously climbing the pro ranks, young Americans like Troy were free to dream bigger. By the late 80s, Troy was living in Newport, where he was one of the hottest up-and-comers on Quicksilver's massive team. He was being closely monitored at their 54th Street gatherings by team manager Richard Wolcott, who was another member of that elite national team in the mid-80s. In fact, it was Woolley's third-place finish at the 84 World Contest that clinched the Americans their celebrated victory over the heavily favored Australians. And Wooly was all set to join several of his peers out on the tour as well until fate intervened and he broke his neck surfing in Baja. After healing, he decided to go and get a business degree from Pepperdine and then joined Danny Kwok in the marketing department at Quicksilver. That's where in 1990, he directed Kelly Slater Black and White. That groundbreaking video documented Slater's first win as a pro and sent shockwaves across the world. But at the time, In order to afford Slater's hefty contract, not to mention navigate the early 90s recession, Quicksilver had to make some dramatic cuts. And Troy still remembers what it was like being 18 years old when the hammer was coming down hard. Right. So it was right around that time. Gotcha. And I was spared. And it was, and it was probably because I'm just like a local Newport kid, you know, yeah, like they yeah. got to keep the roots yeah. like solid. So yeah. it's like, don't get rid of the local kid. <laughs> yeah, that's classic. <laughs> so, but right around then is when Wooly split. Right. So he quit. And what did Wooly tell you when he was starting his own little gig? What, what, how did he approach you? Because you were, for the record... Employee number three? Well, I was employee number one because there's the two co-founders and I was... (laughs) Yeah, that's true, huh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Person number three, employee number one. Yeah, there you go. Uh, um, (laughs) So how did he present it to you? So he kind of disappeared right after he quit and him and Tucker Hall, who's the other co-founder, went on a full like snowboard sabbatical up in Tahoe and just they went snowboarding all over the place. And it's worth noting in 1991 that snowboarding, it had been around but it was really starting to catch fire because that's really when the access to mountains was starting to open up. Totally. It's hard to remember now, but yeah, <laughs> remember yeah. when snowboarders couldn't get on mountains? Oh, hell yeah. So, so, and it was like this punk rock thing to yeah. be like a snowboarder at the time too, right? Right. Oh yeah. And that was the foundation of what Volcom was, was used against establishment. Um, so yeah, Wooly, when he got back, he was living down right behind the frog house in Newport Shores. And um, I remember it pretty clearly actually. He was working in his in his room. He just had like a little little desk and whatever. And he just called me over one day and um, 
he was just like, hey, I'm, I'm starting this company and it's called Volcom. And here, check out these stickers. Like there's like three or four stickers and this is going to be the t-shirt uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, do you want to be part of it? Do you want to be like a team writer or, or Mark? I don't even know what. Like, do you just want to be part of it? Yeah. And I'm not sure if I even thought about it. I think right on the spot, I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I loved Wooly. I loved the movies, you know, yeah. that are black and white. I mean, that was a Bible to me at that point. Of course, yeah. And then even Gen X. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. That was a super powerful movie for me too. Mm-hmm. So those movies probably were a big kind of subconscious thing for me that made me make that decision right there on the spot. Yeah, because he was creating something cool. Totally. Something different, something cool, something new. Mm-hmm. And had you um, done any snowboarding at that point? Not so much. Okay. Not too much. Right. I mean, that was pretty much where I got introduced. It was right around then. Because I think that's one of the other unique factors about when I look at Volcom's rise was that they really sort of hitched a part of their identity to this new thing. Yeah. You know, they were disrupting the culture in a huge way. Yeah, for sure. It was it was a cool time to be a snowboarder. Right. Yeah. And so were you guys signing up snowboarders right out of the gate along with the surfers and skaters and stuff like that? How soon was it a, a board riding company? Out of the gates. Basically out of the gates. I mean, within months, you know, Willie got Terry involved, Terry Hawkinson. Mm-hmm. And at that point he was like the god of gods. Was Terry the current, the Aki? Like put him in surf he sort was, of. He was the current and the Aki combined, <laughs> basically. He was, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was... Uh, I mean, he's to this day, the guy's like insane still, you know. And we should note he's a pretty damn good surfer. Yeah, he surfs good. And he's a he's a passionate about surfing. Yeah. Uh, we went on that boat trip to Mexico. Remember yeah, that trip we went on? Yeah. And he was with us. That That's was right. with Andy and Bruce and yep. the whole squad. And he was ripping. Dusty. Totally. Dusty, droid. That was an incredible trip. Yeah, that was. So talk about... In retrospect, it seems like it was all just this master design. <laughs> but how much was just you guys facilitating the fun factor while trying to resemble a business? I mean, I would say 80% was fun factor and like just fun and feel. It was all about, did we resonate with these guys on all the levels? Can we go hang out with them? I mean, that was always a big thing was, can we connect with these people on a whole different level than just like, oh, they snowboard well, they surf well, they skate well. It's like, do these guys embody what we are all about? That was the most important thing, but it was so organic. We weren't overthinking anything. It wasn't like looking at spreadsheets or data. Right. And I was 18 years old and Willie was 26 right, or whatever. Yeah, 26. So that's how young we were. You guys all wore a lot of hats. We all wear a lot of hats, but everyone was so close because everybody cared about each other and their well-being mm-hmm. beyond the workplace. And I'm talking like employee-specific, right? internal teams, that it was a family. Everybody looked out for one another. And it wasn't like he said, she said, bullshit. And I really took pride in hiring people that were definitely better than me. But also there was an underlying thing I was looking for with a person that I hired, which was like, is this a good person? You know, is this person just out to make money or what's the motivation here? You know, and, and so, I mean, we built incredible teams. I mean, barely any turnover. Yeah. So I'm talking people that have been there 10 years plus 15. There's, you know, Brad and Remy have been there for 25 years. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like the last of the last kind of thing. So that's a huge part of it. 
I mean, huge part of it. When you made those hires, are those filters just sort of energy, gut? It's energy? all energy. Yeah, it's all energy, which is exactly what we're made of, anyways. Right. And I'm now learning that that was really what it was. Yeah. In the moment, and as opposed to just staring at this person's resume, I don't give a fuck about their resume. Right. Truly. Yeah. Like, yeah, tell me what's going on, what you did. Yeah. But it's like, how's this energy feel? Yeah. You know? Yep. That's everything to me. And especially with the work I'm doing now, it's all directed around that. Because that energy you're talking about, it's a key to your happiness, is it not? Mm -hmm. It's not so much the salary that makes you happy. It's are you stoked showing up every day and being around these people? Because that's your family. Yeah. I mean, I pretty much would know. I feel like there would never really be like second interviews. A lot of the time be like, this guy's in or out you know what mm-hmm. i mean it's like this guy's going to be part of my our family right or you know what he's not not quite a right fit and it was pretty easy to figure out to know yeah and it served you well while it's always been tough to put a value on the impact of a movie you'd be hard-pressed to find individuals more convinced of their power than richard wolcott and troy eckert from volcom's earliest days films became a vital part of their marketing investment. Troy produced and directed roughly 15 films while he was there. He got a crash course in the craft with Volcom's first movie, Alive We Ride, followed by their first all-snowboard film, The Garden. During those first few years, Troy and Wooly were doing almost everything themselves, shooting and editing the Super 8 and 16mm film by hand. Not surprisingly, those projects became all-consuming. So we'd have his whole apartment riddled with these cardboard boxes with all the original shots of the garden. Jeez. So yeah, we did that with the garden only, I think. I would think that was the one and only. (laughs) Our whole thing was 100% handmade, which it truly was. Wow. That one was insane. The garden was insane. That's so (laughs) fun. On so many levels. Yeah. And and me and Wooly shot every piece of film. We shot all of it. Wow. It was just, and that was my introduction into film making, right. like literally filmmaking Super 8 film. And um, yeah, it was a trip. What were some of the other ones? Magnaplasm's in there somewhere. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. So Magnaplasm was was obviously like our big real coming out for the surf world. And right. that was the one I think that like people that have been around Vulcan for a long time really identify with is Magnaplasm. Right. So the other thing is we had the huge premieres and, mm. and so the big parties and and then we did Subject to Hawkinson, which we had the first ever it was right when we moved into the new Quicksilver building. Yep. And it was it was Rockto I remember this I remember this. It was Rocktober first. It was it said this on the <laughs> on the thing, Rocktober first, nineteen ninety nine. Wow. So that was when Subject Hawkinson came out and we had a fucking blowout. There must have been five to ten thousand people in our parking lot. And at that point, Terje is probably the most popular snowboarder in the world. Yeah, I would say so for sure. While Volcom's colorful team roster kept expanding, their grassroots campaign became a revolution. What began as low-key gatherings on the beach ended up disrupting surfing's entire amateur system. Troy and his team took Quicksilver's idea of having a beachhead and blew it up a million times over, making them more formalized rated events and offering mega prizes for kids who could enter the events for free. Within a few short years, 
Volcom's Grassroots VQS series was the hottest ticket in town for any kid looking for a way into the surf, skate, or snowboard scene. The whole vibe epitomized their youth against establishment mantra and personalized the indoctrination path for a generation of Volcom flag wavers. That thing was huge because you guys created like an army of mm. of loyalists. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Those are amazing. I mean, the, they started at 54th Street and it was just, I would bring down the little 10 by 10 tent, some donuts, and then we started making jerseys and we would have these like impromptu contests with no permits or nothing. And I know you were just going full on rogue yeah, on the well, beach, right? Well, yeah. Well, Quicksilver used to do them too. If I remember correctly, I feel like they stopped doing them. So we almost picked up where they left off. Mm-hmm. So we just, we started that. Actually, the first thing we did was we called it early surf, late skate. We had this, like, it was our first building. It wasn't even a building. It was like a office with like this warehouse that has three racks. It's not a building. It's a little piece of a corner of a building actually <laughs> and um but we would we called it early surf late skate so we would do the beginning of what would become the crustaceous tour right do that in the morning and then we'd all go up to where the warehouse was and we had these two janky quarter pipes not even a half pipe like shitty cement in the middle and we put one quarter pipe against the wall and another quarter pipe on the other side and we just like fuck around on the on the quarter pipes and we called that that was the skate part oh my gosh. <laughs> and we maybe got like taco bell or something and just oh. like fed people oh my god that was the beginning like straight up and how many how often would you do that it was every thursday we did okay. it once a week and then it got to be too much for we were hauling people up and just so we just went to surf was was the main thing and then that thing just blew up so quickly and so organically. And before I knew it, it was like a global thing. I mean, and the whole idea behind it was let the kids ride free, which is free events. No entry fee. No entry fee. And all the way till when they just recently shut them down, there never, ever was. So it went on for, you know, 15 to 20 years, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So we would give away so much crazy shit. I remember. I remember watching these kids walking away with like motorcycles and snowboards. <laughs> For sure. There was a lot of team riders that came from it. There were employees that came from it. It was insane. It was just super fun for everybody. It was people would look forward to those contests. Yeah. People would look forward to coming definitely to the to the championships because we would just theme them out, be like wrestling themes or, you know, cowboy themes or just how fun, how much fun can we like have basically is, was the goal. And I mean, it ended up being like that with, with skate, skate and, snow, and too. snow. Oh yeah. God, you guys were, it was gnarly. unbelievable. It was gnarly. And that is it, such an operation. It was the same thing. It was like the same thing too. Like the amount of effort and care we put into the surf, it was the same on the snow and we did at skate parks. I mean, we gave, well, away, you guys, we gave away tons of cash too. It was crazy. It is crazy. You Volcom, they weren't, giant backers of the world tour. So I wonder, you know, as you watch the tour grow and, you know, you guys are coming along late 90s, early 2000s, Andy, Kelly rivalry. Pro surfing was pretty exciting at that point. The webcasts were still starting to to, to go. What were the internal discussions at Volcom like about <laughs> your relationship with pro surfing and what it should be? Yeah, I mean, the only real discussions were around, as we grow, do we sponsor a CT or something? Do we put our resources there? But we would always just go back to, that's just not who we are. We don't need that. It's too establishment. In a sense, but Volcom was the sum of all of its parts. 
right? So like skateboarding, mm-hmm. snowboarding, surfing. So each one of these sports carry the other in a sense. Mm. And not only that, it was like we had guys like Ozzy Wright and Gavin Beshin. We had these characters, Barney, mm-hmm. that were getting so much coverage, mm-hmm. covers and just movies. And it just, it didn't make sense, I think, at, at that time. For sure, there was discussions about like, some people were like, let's do it. But we were always like, you know what? No. Yeah. And then even the Vulcan Pie Pro was the stretch of like, we're in the we're in the world now. We, but, o- we own the best event in the QS. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a very strategic thing too. And Brad Doherty was a big advocate of that too. So I, I, I give him a ton of credit with that. Mm. And it was, I mean, look at it now. It's still like killing it. It's still one of the best contests there are. Oh, for sure. You know, and with what we were doing at the time in Hawaii with the two houses and just, it made, I mean, that makes so much sense. Yeah. And it was, we had the opportunity to actually get it. Mm-hmm. So that, that was like a big blessing in and of itself. In 2005, Volcom was firing on all cylinders, and so were the surf, skate, and snow industries. Volcom's videos were flying off the shelves. They had their own record label, and their long list of young stars were coming of age. Boarders like Sean White, Brian Aguchi, and Jamie Lynn, surfers like Bruce Irons, Ozzy Wright, and Gavin Beshin, and skaters like Ryan Sheckler, Rune Glyffberg, and Louis Lopez. Those guys were just the tip of a very long spear. But with the retail landscape getting much more sophisticated, brands were being pressured to step it up too. Companies like Quicksilver, Billabong, and Oakley had already gone public to meet the growing demand. And after 14 years of hard work, the Volcom team and their investors were contemplating the same move. Obviously, going public would be a life-changing decision for everyone involved. So it wasn't one that was being taken lightly. So for me, as, you know, running the marketing department and what I was doing, I was, I was nervous, very nervous. Wooly was too. It's, we all were. It's tough to reconcile. We were, you can't, <laughs> there's no going back. Right. You know, and okay, well, we go public and we're, we're just not, you think it's establishment anymore. Like we just went public and we had many, 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 many meetings about it um, over the course of probably a year leading up to it, maybe something like that. You know, ultimately there was, there was some reasons to, to do it, to be able to compete with the Quicksilver's, the Billabong's and all those brands. So, so that was the, you know, a big, re- one of the big reasons why, and the pros outweighed the cons, right? So we, yeah, we, we, we went for it. <laughs> and I mean, talk about the day it happened. Because all of a sudden, your net worth obviously goes mm. financially. You're just like, okay, I'm set. So I thought. <laughs> <laughs> but guess what happened? The ego got in the way. Right. It's so interesting in retrospect looking at all that. But, well, yeah, on paper, I was definitely set. Especially mm-hmm. when the stock's trading 50 bucks, you know, yeah. a share. Which, by the way, it, it hit its peak when we were on our little Mexico boat trip. Yeah. It was. It started to drop mm. in the middle of our trip, and you were on the sat phone coming out of like <laughs> the office, flashing signals to Wooly about what the stock price was. Gosh, but man. heavy. I mean, I was just going, God, I wonder what these guys are going through right now. It was the first cracks of the credit bubble in mm. 2007. It was about a year before the big crash. Yeah. There was like this little warning sign. That was the peak of the market. 
Yeah, and it was crazy because we were so consumed with it, mm. like the stock price and just what's it doing today? What's it doing this minute? What's it? it's just like it's a mind fuck. Yeah. And when your assets are tied up to that and just all you've worked for and I mean you're watching your net worth just first skyrocket. Yeah. And then the next day it's just like <laughs> plummets, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and and it's just emotional roller coaster. Yeah. At at that time and I was so attached to it. And I think a lot of us were, and I think I'm just now thinking back how unhealthy that was for mm. so many reasons. You know, the ego is just like as fueled as it could ever be in that moment. Right. And and then we lost a lot of focus on the brand too, because we're worried about the stock price and the public and just, you know, I mean, there's all the calls that Wooly and those guys had to prepare for, which was like a massive amounts of work. Mm. You know, the accounting- the conference calls and stuff, yeah. It went from- who knows, three, four people in accounting. And then like the next day, it's like 30 people. So did the culture change overnight when L you go public? Literally changed overnight. Literally changed overnight. Wow. 100%. While going public was a shock to the groovy little company system, being flush with cash did have its advantages. For starters, every aspect of Troy's budget was increased in the aftermath, which is a marketer's dream. Volcom's stock price soared to a market cap of over a billion dollars at its high before pulling back to a more realistic $600 million valuation. Troy and his buddies had done well, and he was finally beginning to ponder his next move when the economy suddenly crashed in 2008. He and his wife, Allie, had already been discussing moving to Hawaii at that point, but in the end, Pulling the ripcord was much tougher than he expected. So for me to bow out right then, I just, it did not feel right. Mm. It would have been just like, right on you guys, have fun cleaning up that mess. I'm out. And so I guess morally, I just, I didn't want to leave on that note. And so then I kind of toughed it out for those next couple years and made sure... I felt good about kind of my teams are in place. Everybody's firing. When I leave, it's like we can just plug someone in and it's not going to be this like turmoil situation. And, and that's exactly what happened. When it comes to his Volcom journey, there's no shortage of magic moments for Troy to reflect on. He and his team created a lot of goodwill, good friends and good times. Of course, some of the best included the late Santa Cruz surf star, Sean Barney Barrett. Today, four years after his death, Troy appreciates his gifts more than ever. When he would just show up at Volcom in the offices, everybody would be in their serious mode working and stuff. And then Barney would just come in and <laughs> here comes the class clown. Just, you know, he would just come in and just start fucking with you. <laughs> Like he would just like, and it wasn't, it was just Barney being Barney. There was no, he wasn't trying to do anything, you know, <laughs> anything weird. Not hostile. Yeah. Or, yeah. He, he was just coming in and, and just doing his sarcastic Barney shit. And you would just, all of a sudden everything would just come, become light and just fun. And you were just like, oh, breath yeah. of fresh air. Just walked through this building. Barney was the master of the present moment. So true. I swear. I've never met anybody like him where it was so about what was in front of him. And it was just like an incredible thing to really witness. Yeah. The guy never planned. He never like did it. 
It was just like, I'm just here. I'm in the moment. I'm going here. I'm like, a, I'm just this leaf that just gets blown around and wherever I am is where I'm supposed to be. That is so true. You know? And, and he would make the most of wherever he was. Yeah. He was so good at that. So good. And in the water too, going for barrel rolls and freaking like whatever, alley-oops and just the airs and just the late Barney backs and, you know, all his wetsuits, the Batman wetsuits and all the so different good. superhero stuff. I mean, that was Barney being Barney in the moment. It wasn't part of some social media strategy. That was just who he was. You walk into his house and you see all his artwork yeah. and you're just like, oh my God. The guy was just... So creative. Very one of a kind. Yeah. It's amazing how his mind worked. What he went through with his struggle with bipolar, you know? And he's one of those characters where I feel like we were just really, truly starting to appreciate who he was. Yeah. And what he gave everybody when we lost him. Yeah, totally. I, I look back now and I just go, wow, what a freaking genius that guy was. He was a total genius. One of the only things that brought Troy some peace and perspective during his emotional low was yoga. It's a practice Dr. Tim Brown introduced him to in 2006. Today, it's the central force of his fitness and health. In 2016, he even started a men's yoga line called Cosm with his old Vulcan buddy, Derek Sabori. It kept Troy pretty occupied for a year, but he realized quickly he wasn't ready to go into the apparel business again. And while that might not have been the right road, yoga was definitely taking him in the right direction. But even after the divorce, I was still like pissed and, yeah. you know, resentful and just all this horribly bad energy. Destructive. Destructive energy that I was carrying about and just went into a full sort of tailspin, you know, and... Almost like back to the Volcom days, 41. Like, what the, What am I doing? You're you know? 19 again. Yeah, like I'm 19 or 25 or whatever. And, you know, that was a short stint, though. That was, I woke up pretty quickly. I mean, I had three daughters and trying right. to figure out how to be a father in that new situation. And I went back to yoga after my divorce. I mean, it was a lifesaver for me in so many ways to just reconnect. And that was a huge savior for me. People think it's like stretching. It's literally like stretching your entire brain to toes is what it is. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a mind melter. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> like you're going to learn more stuff about yourself with a regular yoga practice than you would with any therapeutic therapy session ever mm. because you're forced to go inward. Mm -hmm. It just only gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It's a form of moving meditation. For other people, it could be other stuff. It could be, yeah, swimming, could be... yeah. Hiking could be mountain climbing, but I think when you get into the yoga stuff, it's really, you start to unlock different parts of your body um, and, and you start to really unlock some trauma that's built, that's, you know, mm -hmm. built in your tissues. You can release that stuff and then it's just like, whoa, <laughs> you yeah. start to like, that's how you, for me, another, is, is how I get to know who I am too, is when I get on my mat and like, and every day is different. Yeah. Every day is different. So it's just... It's been, a, it's been the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I'm just, it's something I'll have for the rest of my life. As you go through your turmoil and you learn like, you know what? I got to dive inward and figure out what's going on here. How much of that was taking a look at your habits, your day-to-day? -day? 
what you were doing and how much have you changed on that front? Yeah, a lot. I've changed a lot. I wasn't feeding myself and my soul in the way that I am now at all. <laughs> I mean, looking back at Volcom days, there was no, there was, it was all unconscious habits. Everything was unconscious, just automatic. Autopilot. There was just autopilot, automatic, completely unconscious. I could close my eyes and just do it all. Then walk out the door and drive the car, <laughs> drive in the car, get to work, go sit at my desk. Da, 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 da. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I had to do a big kind of, I mean, this is all part of like the path too, of just looking, looking at my habits and patterns from the moment I wake up. So number one, I'm making my bed, <laughs> you know, cause that's, yeah. a, that's accomplishing, like you're accomplishing one thing, like getting that a, task done. Yeah. You just got your first task done. You make your bed, right. you know, and that feels good. Um, then I typically come in to my living room and I'll sit, I'll meditate for 20 to 40 minutes. And then I will do breath work, um, depending just different types of breath work after my meditations just short and that right there is the key to my day when we're talking like day by day Mm -hmm. right so really and then not even looking at my phone until i like 8 30 or 9 really no that's awesome. So no, I noticed that because I texted you this morning pretty <laughs> early and you didn't respond until about eight thirty nine. Yeah. yeah. So no Instagram, no social media, no emails, no, no nothing. That's awesome. You know, what are you consuming? How are you consuming your stuff? And I'm talking from like yeah. Cons- and what's consuming you? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So you know, food is consumption, right? But so is social media. So are emails. So is the news. So is the people you hang around with. Most of the time, it's unconscious consumption versus conscious consumption. So that is a huge thing for me and, you know, for a lot for people too to be aware of is what am I actually consuming? How am I consuming it? You know, and how is it affecting me as a person throughout my day? When I read the news, how does that make me feel? Am I anxious? Am I worried? Am I fearful? Like, hey, guess what? Maybe you probably shouldn't read the news all the time. I mean, some people love that, like get fueled on that stuff. But ultimately for me in self-care, that does not help. I don't look at any news at all whatsoever. I mean... And I have social media for business and, you know, a little bit of personal and I'll see news come it's across the there. same thing. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, if it's something that's really, how everybody, that's how everybody's getting their news now is social media. Totally. But and so it's it's but I'm not turning on CNN and all this other right. crap. I just have my computer on how to TV. Um, so, so you're you're making a very deliberate, conscious effort to take an inventory of what is impacting your brain 100. on a on a daily basis. One hundred percent. And there's this tension right like we're leaning on these instruments and these analytics to gauge our happiness levels Mm. and our success levels and something yet i think a lot of times they lead us so far astray Mm. there's this big tension between you know these two worlds of being connected and disconnected yeah yeah i've been i've been going back to this whole idea of like feeling like how does it feel (laughs) versus like the data yeah you know and and we spoke about this a few minutes ago, but like with Volcom and the early days of Volcom, all the way up until about 2009 or 10, before Facebook was even really born, there was no Instagram. Instagram was just born when I left, basically. Yeah. So 
that whole 20 years was all feeling, truly, you know, pretty much feeling. Gut, heart, how did it feel? And that was yeah. it. And, yeah. and that's how we built that. That's how we built that brand. Very, on a, on very a, hard to measure the, the impact of a two page spread in a magazine. Two page spread, <laughs> the, amount, the amount you pay an athlete. Yeah. You know, the amount, the amount yeah. you pay to create a film that's all 60 millimeter and super eight. Yeah. I mean, those were all decisions that were just, hell yeah, let's do this. Like, this feels right. This feels good. Even picking up team writers, like, is this guy our vibe? Does it feel right to be with this guy? Yeah. You know, or gal. Yeah. And that was our barometer always. And don't get me wrong. I mean, data is important. Like there's important aspects and it's awesome to track and be able to know and right. all those things. But I think, I think we need to sort of reverse engineer it again and get it back to what it was and start with the feeling and then check the data versus like check the data and then create something from the data. It's the cart before the horse. Yeah, absolutely. You know? It's funny. I was, I'm, I've been working with these guys who were um, like a sailing client, right? And to win a sailing race, you you have to optimize your boat, right? What are the instruments saying about how my boat's performing right now? Checking and seeing how your sails are. And it's really kind of head down right there in the moment, optimizing everything you're doing right there on the boat. But at the same time, you have to keep your eyes on the horizon. Mm. And like, am I even on the right course? Mm. And what does nature tell me about what this wind's going to do? And what are the bigger trends that are going to affect me and can screw with me? Because if I'm not I'm, I'm behind this guy. I might have to tack and change course right now and mm. go fully make this gamble. Mm. That's a beautiful metaphor right there. Data and everything's killer. It's great to have that, but it can't be everything. No. You know, and I think surfers have that innate understanding as mm. well. You mentioned it when you went back down to San Onofre after mm. not surfing for three months. And yeah. it was just sort of like reconnecting with wave energy, I bet. Yeah. That was something that was just like, put your heart. Yeah. At ease? Yeah. Well, it was also like a feeling of being home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know how it is for surfers. It's like when we get in the water, we feel like we're at home. Yeah. And it's interesting because as surfers, being in the ocean, it's about the most unknown place you can even freaking imagine when it comes to like a playing field, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's moving. Everything's changing always. There's never the same wave. Yeah. You know, it's always, always, always different. And it's always exciting. And as surfers, we crave that feeling, right? Like all the time. So we're so good with the unknown in the ocean. Yet when we get on land, we just need to be in control. I don't know if I, if this is my quote or whatever, but um, I've been saying, don't worry, everything is out of control. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Versus like, don't worry. It's all, it's like, everything's under control. Is it, you know? No, it's not, you know, enjoy the chaos, enjoy the chaos. And that's, I think is like, if you can get to that place of, of don't worry, everything's out of control. It's like, what's there to worry about? Yeah. Well, humans as a species, I think the biggest thing we're trying to adapt to is the uncertainty Mm. because it's happening so rapidly. Technology is advancing faster than humans can adapt. Yep. And that's creating a lot of that angst. Yeah. And a, a perfect example of that is how many freaking media channels are screaming for your attention Mm. not just on cable but on your phone and your computer and everybody's trying to get at you and scare you with some impending doom right around the corner if you don't do something totally (laughs) totally 
Yeah, the media is crazy and just like the targeting and all the things that are happening. It's like, I feel like they can like, they can read your mind now. Yeah. Like there's been a couple of times where I, like I never searched something, but I was thinking something and all of a sudden it pops up. I'm like, what's happening right now? Like we're not that yeah. far off. Like truly. Uh, oh no, the, the human behavior stuff, it's there. And I mean, it's, your phones are always listening to you already. See, that's the thing is yeah. like, you got the microphones all yeah, over the, the microphones place. microphones are and, all over you. But again, that's just like, who cares? You can't control that. We just live in a world of that sort of thing that's unfolding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, be okay with the unknown. Be okay with just not knowing what the hell's going on and being happy in the now. You know, bringing yourself back to the present versus being anxious about something that may happen or impending doom or all this sort of mm -hmm. bullshit, basically. Yeah. And it's like when you can get back to where you are in this moment, look where we are right now. We're sitting outside in Dana Point. There's, it's a beautiful day today. It's a yeah. fall. It's like one of the first fall days that yeah. we've had in a long time. Feels like fall. For all, Crispy actually, the fall. first fall day. Yeah. Um, I mean, f this is amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. You know, but then when you sit there and think about something else or the news or the, da, 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 it's just yeah. like, then you kind of like start to get this like anxious feeling. It's just like, that's, that's how we live as human beings. Unfortunately, either we're in the past, the familiar past or the unpredictable future. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and it's that unpredictability that people are totally just not cool with. So is a big part of your coaching reset, connect with yourself. Because it's a very holistic thing. It's not just career coaching. Yeah. You know, I think when I first heard that you were going in this coaching direction, that it was like, oh, well, he was obviously a business tycoon. He's helping people out with their mm. career thing. And I'm sure that's some of it. I'm sure that's an aspect, but that's not the whole thing by any means. No, the career thing is sort of a byproduct. Right. Everybody's got their different journey and they're at different stages, but a lot of the time it's just really, it's that self-discovery of who I am, what am I here for? Yeah. <laughs> to the essence of it. And, and if we can get, we can dial in on that and sort of empower you to, to come up with those ideas or just what it is, then that's where it's at for me. Just getting them to a place where they can figure it out on their own because they have the answers. Everybody has the answers. Mm -hmm. Everybody has the answers. We just, you just need to tap into it and, and kind of get them to a place where they can find those answers for themselves because that's, that's where the power lies. Mm -hmm. Me telling you what to do, you're going to be like, whatever. Yeah. But if I can get you to... If you can get me to tell you what I need to do. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, then all of a sudden... Hey, did you do it? <laughs> yeah, well, and then ultimately it's like you're accountable for you. Also, I'm not accountable for you no matter what. If we're working together, yeah, I can be accountable for you. But that's, again, taking your power away. Yeah. So... Your priority system today versus 15 years ago when you were in the midst of like the Volcom yeah. heyday, yeah. it's totally different. So yeah, now, now it's polar opposite. It's just complete conscious consumption on all levels, really. And that leads into habits as well. And I've written things down of like, these are the things that I'm going to be doing to start my day. These are the things I'm going to be doing to end my day. And it's been huge because it's really allowed me to understand how, that I am in control <laughs> for the most part. This is a huge part of your radical voyage. Yeah. Conscious behavior yeah. about letting the stillness in and taking a moment to think about what you're doing. Yeah. And it seems like that parlays pretty cleanly into the work you do with clients. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's all an experiment, all of it, you know, and by experimenting and implementing these different th things that you do every day, from meditation, you know, 20 minutes meditation to making your bed, starting with making your bed, waking up, putting your hand on your chest and just generating a feeling of love 
in your heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, these little things are game changers. But it's all it is all an experiment because I I continuously sort of add things in or take things out that might be like, oh, that was cool, but I'm going to try this because there's so many things you can be doing. Mm -hmm. The first thing I do actually is I do, this is my one digital thing that I do is I look at the waves on Surfline. I have to do that because that's part of my happiness program. Mm -hmm. It's like checking your pulse. Basically like checking your pulse. Yeah. Totally. Am I alive? (laughs) I I didn't realize that. It's funny because I grew up being able to see the ocean sort of every day. And Mm -hmm. then when I got married, I moved inland and it was so devastating to me to not be able to see the ocean mm-hmm. just from and I, I realized it took me a while to realize and I found myself just routinely driving down to look at the waves even though I could check the cams yeah that's great but I had to go look at the waves I had to physically put eyes on the ocean yeah. and I realized then my heart had to be calibrated <laughs> if I didn't see it I was so out of sync yeah and it's so weird well, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, it's true. You probably weren't calibrated. I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of your calibration process to actually visualize the ocean and see the movement and see the waves. And so, I mean, that's you're, great. you're big into the energy thing, like hugely. Tell me about it, like because <laughs> this is the part I love. Because people be like, oh, it's it's the hippie thing, you know. And what's his name? Daniel Thompson, mm. his dad, who was a shaper, full hardcore hippie guy. He used to shape boards for Kern and Gerlach and those guys. But before he took your order, he'd have to measure your aura. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's like full Byron Bay guy. Yeah. You know? There's no question there's something there. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much what I've been studying in the last like year and a half has been has been energy, energy management. And so becoming aware of what depletes and what recharges is like crucial. And that's one piece of it. And then you get into the whole, the creation, the manifestation of energy in training matter. You know, your thoughts lead to things. Your thoughts are energy. We all have electromagnetic fields around us that are, I mean, this is not just woo-woo shit. This is like science-based stuff. It's nine feet out on, on you know, you literally have a bubble. And so it's just like when you walk into a room and, and there's a weird vibe. Well, it's like you talked about when Barney walked in the room. Yeah. When he walked in the office and just changed the energy. Yeah. It's because he's, he, his energy is happy and just literally lighting up the room. It's like if the room was dark, here comes the light. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, we're just all in the light and it's just. If you're attuned to that, you see it, but you have to be aware that it exists. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you could, you identify who the positive energy people are. Yeah. I mean, how does your phone get emails and text messages and stuff when it's not plugged into the wall? That's energy. Right. Waves. <laughs> like there's waves. Right. It's funny because people kind of like think that this stuff is woo-woo, but it's just, wait a second, you walk around with a phone in your pocket <laughs> yeah. and it's this device. It's just how much information is being transmitted, tran- transmitted and you're telling me that there's no energy. Our whole world is in an electromagnetic field basically so we're all walking around like little batteries yeah we are and we and we're putting off either negative or you know positive energy and it's a good way of looking at it yeah and you know be aware of what you're putting into the field it's all there so whatever energy you put out is really what you're going to get back there's crazy statistics about how much repeating thought patterns we have on a daily basis it's like 90 percent per day and like 80 percent are negative Mm. And so if you just consciously get aware of your thinking patterns and you're able to sort of swap that stuff out on the fly, on the go, 
you know, you come into gratitude, you come into appreciation, you come into these good feelings, even take your mind to a good place. Right. It's really powerful. And that's literally how we do remap our brain, literally rewire our brain. I think what's funny about the coaching thing, and I'm sure you've probably run into this, people are so sort of cynical. Mm. It's like, oh, you're a life coach. Totally. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So that's got to be tough it's funny like i have sometimes i have a hard time like just even saying it but i mean now but now in the beginning i did now i'm like i feel totally comfortable talking about it or saying it because Mm -hmm. i know the benefits of it and i know the transformation that occurs right you know so it's like i believe in the modality Mm -hmm. whole and whole through and through and now that i'm into it i look back on my volcom days early volcom days And I think it's a lot more prevalent these days now where companies will hire coaches to work with employees. And man, if I would have had that back then, it would have been a massive help. Mm. Not even so much for stuff within the company of like the company workings, almost about how I manage myself within the company. Right. That's even more valuable, in my opinion. Now, I know one of the first things you experimented with was putting together a men's group. Yeah. It's called the Man Down Club. It's sort of around that idea of instead of like manning up, like as as men were told to man up, mm. this is about manning down, sort of getting in touch with, you know, your yourself, maybe a bit of the feminine side as well, because it's super important, mm-hmm. especially with how we, you know, how we're living today. And um, it's just a place to be vulnerable and share support and just, Lift guys too, yeah. you know, because especially it seems like everyone's so busy that this is a, a, just a nice, cool, safe place to just share and be men, be real, be honest, be truthful, yeah. see each other, call each other out, hold each other accountable. Right. But at the same time, just, uh, just understand that this world is in need of some manning down. So where do you want to take this? Yeah, I mean, it's still very new. I mean, this is like a year and almost almost two years, year and a half, a little over. Um, this is an infancy mode right, right now. But it's really, I mean, I probably could have pushed the pedal even more for sure. But by design, I've just been on this whole self-care, self-evolution mission alongside building my coaching business. So, I mean, it's, it's way further. I mean, I have two men's groups, one's online, one's physical. Um, I got, you know handful of awesome clients. I'm also thinking about, I'm not thinking, I'm going to do a retreat. I'm going to do like, I want to do either Costa Rica or somewhere in Mex or, you know, somewhere away from here where it's nice and warm, mm-hmm. where we can go. And um, it'll be, it'll be like a mindfulness, yoga, meditation, surfing, um, and then coaching. So with like, you know, great food and just good company and just a small intimate group. So I'm going to start doing the retreats which will be super fun for me and for everyone who's involved. And then, yeah, I have these ideas about these these one-day immersion things where it's just kind of like you get the crash course of the retreat in one day. There's no shortage of ideas. It's right. just like, where do I want to put my energy? Right now, I feel like creating and creating in the creation and just doing the things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. The healing occurs, it continues. Well, listen, Troy, this has been really fun and I'm so excited to see where you take this. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of this and watching what you're doing. So we should be sending them anyway. If anybody wants to find out more to, to your website, radicalvoyage.com. Yep. 
Okay. And that's your Instagram as well. Radical Boy Chap. That's it. Gotcha, man. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, this has been fun. I'm gonna I might have to get on that Costa Rica trip. Yeah, dude. You're the first guy that's doing this. I might be so I'm gonna be so stiff. Your yoga's gonna kill me, but uh, I'm ready. I'm we'll, overdue. We'll go we'll go baby steps. We'll we'll go we'll go mellow with you. <laughs> okay. All levels welcome. Yeah. I'm excited. That's gonna be cool. Yeah. That sounds really cool. All right. Thanks, Troy. Thank you, brother. hope you enjoyed that. I really love sitting down with Troy. He's got such a calming presence about him, and I always walk away from our chats feeling very inspired, which makes me super grateful. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, please head to your podcast platform of choice and give it a five-star review. And what would be even better is send a link of the show to two of your favorite friends that you think might dig it. You guys, again, are my best marketers. And that will do me wonders in taking this thing to the next level. Of course, feel free to DM me with any feedback via my Instagram handle at People Who Surf Show and visit the website PeopleWhoSurf.com if you want more info on Troy or any of my guests. Special thanks to my buddy Johnny Meek for his music scores and editing. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'll see you in the water.